listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Krishnamurti says that meditation is not a means to an end. It is both a means and an end. It's not a means to an end. In other words, it's not something we do to get somewhere, but that the meditation itself is the there. The stillness practice is the practicing of awakening. And every once in a while we can see someone who is in this place of undivided stillness, just absolutely absolutely there, for lack of a better way of saying it. My wife and I went uh, to Yoshi's recently and saw a gentleman named Kurt Elling. I'm going to give him a little bit of a plug here. Uh, he's a jazz vocalist. He's about my age, maybe a little older, a little younger. Uh, and it was so clear to us that his level of consciousness, we both kind of independently arrived at this and talked about it after his set, he was so in sync, not only with the band, but with his voice, and then with something bigger. I, I really can't figure out how to put words to it, and I don't know that it's that necessary, but there was just this incredible unity of the experience of watching him express himself fully. And when we see someone at that level of expression, we call it artistic expression oftentimes, but that artistic expression can be any one of us at any point, at any moment in our lives coming from a place that lacks disunion. Or said another way, coming from a place that is absolutely totally at one with at one meant atonement. Okay? That we are there with the universe, the one song. And it's playing through us. It was as if Mr. Elling was just getting out of the way. I don't know if that makes much sense. <laughs> Hopefully it does a little bit. But literally, it's like he was getting out of his own way. And I've seen other performers that, you know, where this has happened and so forth. But this it just, you know, it floored us. And it happened to me that we were, you know, right in front and he was sweating all over us. And so maybe that had something to do with it. He, he was anointing us with sacred <laughs> sweat. <laughs> But it was it was really remarkable. It was a uh, it was a spiritual experience as much as I mean everything's a spiritual experience. But that came from a place of very very conscious intentionality on his part. It's consciously letting it happen. Sometimes we can see absolute non division on the part of our animals. My cat is, a, is an expert at um, 
showing absolutely just a total focus and singularity with uh, whatever he's doing, even if he's uh, relaxing, taking up a tremendous amount of space in the middle of our kitchen floor right when we're trying to cook, okay? Or as he did the other day, he decided to um, decided to scratch my my wrist uh, with absolute full full attention. Um, it, it was absolutely remarkable to watching him just kind of focus. And have you ever noticed that you cannot take your eyes off of something that is that focused? Whether it's an animal, sometimes you can see it uh, on stage with uh, actors. Actors that are absolutely listening to what is going on with their partner while they're on stage really are in a different, you can't take your eyes off them, and we call it good acting. So then this leads us to our lives. How do we turn our lives into art? How do we become, literally become an artistic expression, a conscious expression of awakening? And I figured since for me to just say practice, you would all probably start throwing things at me. Um, I'll give you a little bit more than just that word practice, although that's really the answer. Uh, we begin usually with our small self. We sometimes call the ego. We interchange that word ego with mind. And then sometimes we also use the word uh, small self. I like small self in this case. I think it works really well. That was a term used by Suzuki Roshi, the guy that brought Soto Zen here to San Francisco some years back. And his idea was we have a small self, which is that in us which is contracted, that in us which is egoic, that which is threatened, so forth, that which is mind-oriented. In other words, our thoughts govern and limit the expression of this small self. Then we have the big self, which is beyond, but also brings along the small self. The big self doesn't really have a limit. It's infinity, okay, that recognizes itself through us. We become its mirror consciously, purposefully. And we do this rather effortlessly the more we practice stillness because stillness itself is infinity itself. There is nothing that is not infinity, but stillness actually allows for the realization to just, it just pounds through. It cracks the small self. Okay? You know how like an oyster is opening and closing its mouth, sand gets in there, creates an irritation, and what do we get? A pearl. Same type of thing. We open ourselves little bit by little bit, and what begins to grow within us, within that small self, a pearl that begins to shine so brightly, energetically, it begins to resonate so powerfully that it pretty much means that the shell is superfluous to the entire experience of the big self. Those are a lot of words, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, stick with me. Hopefully it'll make sense. The small self starts us off. The small self begins to become interested, becomes fascinated 
with a spiritual life. And it begins to attach all these things and project all these things onto what it would be like to be more spiritual. Maybe I'll be calmer. Maybe I won't tailgate people so much on the freeway. Maybe I, maybe I won't get mad as much when people tailgate me. Gosh, that'd be great. Maybe I'll be a little bit nicer. Maybe I'll, you know, all these little things, these superficial things start creeping through. And then it gets actually a little bit deeper. Maybe there's some more meaning that I could actually have in this life. You know, maybe, maybe I actually could resonate with something bigger, something deeper. And then we start on our search, and that gets really fun because the search usually is about dabbling in several things until something strikes us, something works. Well, I had tried Christianity. I grew up, went to you know, Catholic schools, and my knuckles are still sore, so I don't really want to go there. And the whole Jewish thing, I, I don't know, it's so similar to the Catholic thing. I really don't want to do guilt anymore. Let's see, I'll try the you know, uh, Hindu thing, although, boy, I, it's, I'm just so confused. And, you know, and, and then oh, Buddhism, well, Buddhism, I don't want to cut my hair, whatever. We go through all these various little tests. We dip our toes, keep dipping our toes until something kind of works. For me, it happened to have been Buddhism, but it really could have been anything. Just Buddhism, the timing happened to work. And I also happened to hear, the first time I, w I went to the Zen Center, I heard this guy speak, who, like the musician I spoke about in the beginning of my talk, was coming from a place that I just couldn't believe. It literally was beyond, I, and I, it was presence, but it was more than presence. He was clearly in the world. But also, he was kind of from Mars. I couldn't quite figure out. I mean, this is just really amazing to me. And uh, he told me that all my suffering, all my pain, and I happened to be going through a lot at the time, he said all of my pain was because I was just clinging. And of course, inside my head, I'm going, well, what kind of crap is that? Of course I'm clinging. How do you think I'm going to get through life if I don't cling? I've learned to be a you know, really successful human being by sticking to my goals, sticking to my guns, you know, sticking up for myself and everything that I believe is right. And if that's an attachment, so help me. I'll just attach my way to pain. <laughs> and I came back the next week. Because that message stuck. I had, in other words, the first stage usually in our meditative practice, stage one, recognition recognition. Huh. Wow, what the heck was that? And then the next thing you know, with a little help from a friend of mine who like pretty much had the library of every single book on, on any type of spirituality in his wonderful little place in Berkeley, just pretty much started shoving all those books my way, and then one after the other, I just kept reading them, just kept reading them, everything, everything, everything. So like I was pouring this Dharma rain on, on myself, Dixie cup at a time, and pretty soon it started to kind of soak in. And then I decided, you know what, I need to explore this. I started to go to retreats. And then instead of one day, you know, retreats, it became three day retreats, and then it became week long sashins, and then I decided to just commit and live there. Went and actually did a residential thing, traveled, you know, studied with other teachers and so forth, blah, 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 blah. But that's stage one, that's recognition. That's where you know something's there. In that process, born from that process of recognition, is the trickiest one. And it's the one that usually pushes everybody back. 
and that's stage two, what we call resistance. Resistance. And in resistance, some of you have heard me talk about this before, some maybe a great deal, but at resistance, we begin to meet that teaching and that teacher, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a formal teacher, somebody who's you know spouting the Dharma in a formal sense, or it's our kids, or it's the person that you know just takes forever in front of us to check out at the grocery store, can't figure out how to sign their check, or it's you know whatever. Resistance. It's our negativity. Negativity arises in relationship to the teacher and the teaching, the path that we're on. And this resistance is really, really cool. Because this is where, when we start resisting the teaching, we can actually have a felt sense of the small self. We can develop an actual familiarity, a visceral familiarity with that in us which is contracted. We can sense ego. We can own it. And it's not until resistance happens that we can really begin to own or make friends with this thing that has been guiding us along in life, you know, pretty effectively for most, I'm, I'm assuming most of the people in this room, pretty effectively. In that moment of resistance, we begin to grow past. We begin to grow past our limitations. At least that chance is there, depending on how much energy we allow resistance to foist onto the entire situation. If we're present enough, if our stillness practice is grounded enough, we're able to watch this happen and we can kind of go, huh, wow, look at that. Look at all that resistance I've got going on. Look at all that negativity that's born out of this experience. Instead of, ah, negative, get out. Yeah, scary, mm, too much, I'm out. The danger, if we can hit resistance, if we can hit stage two, and at stage two we decide to kind of back out, <laughs> the problem is there's usually kind of partial awakening. And partial awakening is like partial surrender. It's like being in a slow dance but not really being that close. It's this strange, strange space that usually keeps us perpetually on the search. We then are recognizing ourselves as seekers. And to be a seeker is to give the small self an identity that it can hang with for the rest of its days. Seekers are rarely finders until they commit totally to meeting their resistance. So let me share with you how we can meet our resistance every dang day. Whenever anybody gives you anything in your world, anything in your life that can create a little bit of a, neg a surge of negativity, whenever negativity arises within you, whether it's you know, low-grade negativity, kind of annoyance, or high-grade negativity, give me a gun, either version there, Hopefully the gun one doesn't happen very often, but either, either way, 
when we meet our negativity like that, we're given an opportunity to watch it, just like we watch our thoughts in meditation. We realize that this negativity coming up is an egoic or small self-reaction to some situation. If we look at that negativity that arises as being, oh, it's all theirs, it's not mine, guess what? Ego's in control. But if we can look at it as, it, as in other words, anger or rage or negativity, sadness, depression is arising within this experience, you can then identify it or own it. And from that place, you can actually give it your presence, give it your still presence, and its weight begins to automatically and spontaneously dissipate. If you don't believe me, try it. Watching our negativity, watching our resistance, watching our ego go through its dance on the stage of mind whenever it's got something it doesn't like, which it loves having. Watching that experience, we recognize that we're not really caught by it. We're not hooked by it. We don't have to be addicted to it the resistance starts to fall away. And guess what that is? Stage three, release. It's the release of all holding. It's when we no longer hold. Negativity can't churn and burn unless there is holding. None of our suffering can exist within us if there isn't any clinging. What did the Buddha teach? He was asked that question. Well, what is it that you teach? I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. That's the Buddha Dharma right there. That's the, the whole canon falls into that place right there. So in this little facet of that teaching, essentially what we're looking at is how to watch our negativity, watch our resistance, and in the watching of our resistance, we create an open relationship to it where we own it, recognize it, and let it go. Take the hooks out. Sometimes they'll come back, okay? But then we just watch that. <coughs> it's in the watching that the hooking, that we become unhooked. Grabs again, we practice. We practice the watching. Sometimes it can get really frustrating. And this is where having a group fits in. This is where this is so, so helpful. Having a group of meditators that are on the same path can help us watch our hooks. It can help, help us watch as we get caught by things. It can help us watch and provoke resistance. If you think for a moment that living in a monastery in the foothills of the Himalayas is all about non-resistance and bliss, you've got another thing coming. Okay? That was my experience, at least.
it was filled with the same stuff you probably have in your office. Okay? <laughs> Except, of course, there are no women. But it was remarkable to me, absolutely remarkable to me, the amount of recognition and resistance that I could see in a place that I thought would only be filled with release. Ah, that was my attachment. I got to deal with the resistance to that resistance. It's pretty remarkable. And so this release then carries us into this place of what Krishnamurti was talking about. That meditation is not a means to an end. It is both a means and an end. Our stillness, our sitting, is the physical embodiment of stage three release. Okay? But the cool thing about stage three release is that it is the undercurrent, it's the substrate, it's the very thing that is present not only in our recognition but also in our resistance. We always have that release available. Always. Always. It's never not there. So, play with this. Literally, play with this. The next time you feel resistance, the next time you feel negativity, it is a gift. It is putting you right in touch with the things that you are holding. Okay? Figure out what you're holding on to. Okay? And if you know, if you can own what you're holding on to, if you can recognize it, okay, and you can no longer resist it by push it, keeping it at bay or pulling it in, then the stage three can happen. Release can happen. Just like it's happening now. Do any questions arise? You mean after the one about is there life after high school? Is there life after high school? Yes, that's a good one. Uh, the answer. Life after college. The answer is yes, most definitely. Mm. There's you. also lots of death. Sorry. There's also lots of death too. Mm -hmm. Any release is a death of the contraction or the clinging. But shouldn't there be a corresponding celebration if there's a release? It's all celebration at release. As we release, that is celebratory. Mm -hmm. What is celebration? Celebration is, uh-huh. Uh-huh. The roof is on fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? That's about release. And we feel that there's just this bondage that builds and builds and builds and builds until Friday afternoon and then it's ah, happy hour. Right? So at release there is celebration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes when there's a lot of resistance it's because um, there's conflict. Yeah. And 
I'm confused about um, if you release. To me, that sort of surrendering and letting go, and it almost sounds like then um, how do you resolve the conflict, which involves action? Right, right. I'm saying I'm not saying don't. Uh, I'm not saying give in. There's a difference between surrender and giving in. I'm confusing the two. That's okay. That's okay. It's really it's 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 a common question that you'll hear in uh, all sorts of spiritual traditions. This is not about the release. Is not about everything's fine. <laughs> oh, you're going to run over me with that bus? Fine. No, no, that's not fine. In fact. A surrendered response to a bus coming at you at 50 miles an hour down the street is to step out of the way. It saves everybody a lot of trouble when you step out of the way. It's a very compassionate thing. Right? <laughs> so when there is conflict, even if it's not a bus, okay, metaphorically, if it's close, if there's, you know, you're up, you're up against, somebody's really like coming at you and so forth, the appropriate response is always going to be a response that's informed by the release of an outcome. You have no idea what the outcome is going to be, but you're going to participate fully in that moment. Okay? From a place of peace. From a place that isn't locked into certain attached perspectives. Instead, you're open to all sorts of possibilities. Right? As opposed to narrowed. You're not narrowed by your desire or attachment to an outcome. You're open by having no idea how this is going to work out. But by golly, I'm going to meet you with every bit of my attention. And sometimes the response that comes from that mindful attention, that attentiveness and intention in that moment, can sound very much like a mother bear. Right? But it never strays from kindness. It never strays from it never strays from compassion or wisdom. So you meet your 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 contests. You meet your contests with a certain peace, love, and caring. And the resultant outcome of those contests when they're when they're infused with that type of energetic impulse really it's 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 much different than what it would be if you just kind of went okay whenever you're right i'm wrong you know that's a horrible place to be and that has nothing to do with any authentic spiritual tradition it's it that becomes uh that becomes an attachment in and of itself to I'm not worth anything. You are, and you are not. It's all one hand, right? It's all two sides of one coin. So you can meet the world and engage the world from a place of consciousness as opposed to a place of avoidance. You understand the difference? Okay, cool. Yeah. In the same situation, when uh, you're meeting it with openness and the dialogue may sound a bit like Mother Bear, mm -hmm. 
What, what does Mother Bear sound like? What does Mother Bear sound like? That's a great question. What does Mother Bear sound like? Mother Bear sounds like you would sound if your six-year-old boy ran into a parking lot unattended. Right? Right. Okay? Yes. Your vocalization in that moment as Dustin's running into the parking lot. I can I can imagine what it would sound like, but that's because I know you real well. And for and you knew him when he was I knew him when I was when he was six, <laughs> right? And now he's I don't even, don't even don't even say it. Um, <laughs> that's that's coming from a place that's very real, okay? And it's about protection, all right? Now it it's also tricky because it can be about possessiveness. You know, you want to keep your boy, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time that you want to keep your child, you also want to make sure you give him or her everything you can to help them grow past so that they are constantly in a space of growth, of evolution. You do not want to, as a good mama bear, do this to him. You don't want to hold him, hold him down. Right? Mm -hmm. So an awakened approach towards living then goes into that same space. We want each other to grow just like everyone was our own offspring, our own brother, just like everyone is our own mother. We want to participate with all beings in a way that engenders kind of this, this, this open yet purposeful response to the world. And that's what Buddha is. Buddha is an appropriate response. And an appropriate response is continually informed by stillness. And that stillness really carries the recognition, the resistance, and the release into itself. And if this is kind of confusing, that can be good. Because it means that you're not trying to hold it too closely. But if any of it made any sense, if it made any type of sense, it's probably leading you in a, in a place that might be constructive. Any other? Oh, sorry. <laughs> any other questions? Yes, sir. How would the Buddha respond to a Darfur? How would the Buddha respond to a Darfur? Or pick your Darfur. I mean, they're sure. all over the planet. Yeah. What would the appropriate response to a Darfur be? Right. Let me ask you a question. Would the Buddha be there? Would he be president or would he be you? Would he be the queen? Would he be uh, a neighboring uh, 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 leader of some principality that's got an influx of, of people trying to, you know, uh, escape. escape into his his principality. So, what's your question? <laughs> Which face? Of Which face of Buddha would you be referring to? It's all Buddha, Jim. Well, I guess, I guess my concern comes from the fact that it's we live here in California and life 
is pretty darn easy. So how would a California, a suburban California Buddha respond to Darfur? Yeah. By getting off his ass? Mm -hmm. By making sure she constructively engages in the solution to the problem, harboring no ill will towards the per perpetrators of the disaster, but responding appropriately to the healing of this wound. Without hatred, without resistance, without anything that would color the response. So that in essence, the Buddha would leave no trace of ever having done squat. No need for recognition. Let's do this thing. Let's do what can be done. And coming at it from that place that's undefended and undivided, people who act from that place move entire histories. Having said that, I think it's really important while you were formulating a question, I, I asked you a question, um, or actually I made a statement that I think it's really important that, that you hear, which is it's all Buddha. Nothing is not spirit. Nothing is not God. And the minute we start feeling that separation, that dualism, I'm in here, Buddha is totally unattainable. <laughs> or I'm in here praying to God who is out there. I'm sinner. That's God. The minute we s separate like that is the minute ego starts to try to co-opt, or in fact does co-opt the entire spiritual experience, and we become seekers perpetually instead of actualizers, realizers. I forgot what I said. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it'll be on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. You think I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs>